This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse, Triple R's weekly fumbling look into the future and how to avoid it. I'm Adam Grubb, Bushy's away, Kate's off maternity leave, but return host back in the saddle in full fighting form, Shark Puncher Sarah Coles. How do you do? I'm well. Yeah, you look good. I'm actually not well. My personal life's turned to shit. I'm oh, well, being you hide it eviction, very effectively. And I think I broke my finger. Uh huh. I can. See, yeah, that doesn't look good. But I can see the funny side. Mm-hmm. And I was so stressed out last night. I went to a yoga class. Uh huh. And it was the weirdest yoga class I've ever taken in my life. Okay, do tell. Um, she talked quite a lot, and at the start, and then started doing the poses and I thought, okay, she'll stop now. And then halfway through a pose, she's like, has anyone been to the Essendon Dog Park? And then all <laughs> these people in yoga poses start talking about the local dog park. Uh-huh. And then there was some Qigong circle walking, quite a lot of competitive oming. <laughs> like, I, I had a friend who did um, competitive meditation for recreation, which sounds impossible, but he had these little sensors that you could put your finger in and it would register your heart rate and (laughs) the conductivity of your skin and this computer program you could control and there would be these like rocks that would float across this Japanese garden and if you got the less stressed you were, the higher they would float. Um, But then you had to deliberately get stressed to drop them in the right spot. It was very interesting. Yeah, competitive meditation, recommend it. I'll you did some competitive next. oming. Was just who can be the most virtuous I was through just, the vocal cords? I thought, is this really happening? Are we all competing to see who can om the longest? Uh-huh. And then my housemate suggested that I was projecting my own ego trip onto the oming. <laughs> but I think that that is what was happening. Yeah. With some of the people. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Did you win? That's the important question. No, I ran out. <laughs> I thought you'd been practising for free diving. I thought you'd kill the om. Uh, I don't know. When I'm not in water, I can't do it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. well, welcome back anyway. I hope you're going nice to join us for back. a few shows. It's You've been greatly be missed. Back. You've been greatly missed. Kent Dolesworthy is on the panel and on the mic because Jed's away this week, a rare yeah. occasion, but it's nice to see your face again, Kent. Great to see the both of you again too. And it's big shoes to fill, Jed away. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. But uh, I, you, you have quite big feet, <laughs> I'm told. <laughs> you know what they say. <laughs> uh, that was, that was, you did, I love the sort of man. You did a bit of manspreading as you said that. It was, it was real alpha. I feel a little intimidated. <laughs> Although probably it's the alpha in the room. <laughs> 
is unquestionably our guest tonight. <laughs> well, definitely, because you've been a... Um, and this is one where, you know, we do a lot of shows where we invite people um, that we know on. And uh, this is one very close to the heart and um, the, the brain for me because uh, I would count you as a mentor and an inspiration. It is returned guest David Holmgren, co-originator of the permaculture concept, if we go back to the 1970s, and uh, publisher or author of several books, including Future Scenarios, uh, Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability, and the brand new Retro Suburbia, The Downshifter's Guide to a Resilient Future, which is 600 colour pages of incredible tips and philosophies and ways of thinking to get the suburbs into a state where they are more resilient and less resource intensive and less pollution making while creating a more enjoyable place to live. And it's written specifically with Melbourne in mind. So we are very lucky for the existence of this rather hefty book, Thank you for writing it, David Holmgren, and welcome back to Greening the Apocalypse, the first time we've had you in studio. Great to be here on on the ground in Melbourne <laughs> with, <laughs> with you all. There was a New York Times article about you last week. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was actually one of the most shoddily written, um, well, I don't know about written, but certainly the way they edited it, it was pretty crap. But <laughs> I thought that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This uh, is how they describe you. Unshaven, his ponytail greying and the nails of his broad hands dark from work in his garden. Can we see the fingernails? <laughs> I mean, I'd They'll say... at the desk, mostly. Yeah. Well, but, okay. But so far, I mean, they might have... Yeah. Uh, it seems reasonably accurate at that point. Uh, Did you notice they used the, the headline, something about frugal hedonism? Yeah. Which were you, was a pull quote of yours. Yeah. yeah. Which you took from the book I co-authored and we should say also that you... <laughs> this is awkward. Yeah, you, you published... Well, yeah, just from a financial perspective, that's a relationship we have because David and Sue, your partner, who is also a great uh, mentor and inspiration to me, um, published that book when nobody else would for us. So thank you for that. Um, uh, well, it was a, a great uh, start-up towards uh, Retro Suburbia because in a lot of also, ways a lot of the cool, simple behavioural tweaks and and hacks uh, that are in that are sort of like one of the pathways into the much broader, uh, deeper changes that Retro Suburbia involves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I guess what we want to talk about tonight is that book and your vision for Suburbia. There's, in the beginning of the book, you talk about the assumptions that inform it. I think a lot of them are ones that inform this show not always articulated and yet i wouldn't say that they're entirely uh in fact some of them are are not conventionally held beliefs do you want to yeah and and open to critique as well but it's really i actually enjoyed it as a process in the book that you got all those out early and and put them on the table uh do you want to talk about what they are because the book is is mostly a a practical manual Mm. but there's an element of the manifesto in there, mm. uh, it, we're trying to keep a balance of, okay, the big picture over the horizon, large-scale, ecological, geopolitical um, sort of scenario, worldview sort of stuff that, uh, as you know, I'm quite into that has informed uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, this work and before it, from the beginning, really informed uh, permaculture to try and distill that down to, okay, this is, this is our assumptions. And possibly the biggest one is the idea that the future might be one of less resources and energy available to succeeding generations mm. rather than more. Mm. And so what comes from that uh, by default is that society will to some extent have to simplify a lot of its over-complex processes, relocalise and do more things at home rather than in the monetary economy. Mm. Uh, so in some ways it's uh, recreating some of the things that existed in the past and that's partly the retro in retro suburbia mm-hmm. uh, as well. Uh, but it's also recognising the huge opportunities that the uh, fossil fuel-powered, uh, credit-boosted bonanza of growth that's happened in the 20th, 20th century and has been accelerating uh, has created a whole lot of possibilities that weren't there uh, for our grandparents or uh, earlier uh, generations. And the the big one is that the opportunities for urban areas, especially suburban Australia, to be agriculturally productive, Mm -hmm. that they can actually produce a huge amount of the food that people consume in those areas areas. So the idea of that, of course, has become more popular, some of it from the point of view of health, community development. But underlying that is a lot of people driving the urban food movement understand that this might be necessary in the future because the stresses on the centralised way we do things, whether they're climate change, peak oil, geopolitical instability or the most immediate looming... (laughs) Yeah, trade wars. A million different things that could upset the apple cart of of normality. Mm. So that assumption underlined or underpinned permaculture back in the 70s. Mm. And sure, some of the timing of that... um, some of us got a bit wrong about how that might uh, turn out. Like but how soon you would see, like, resource depletion and yeah. and, and environmental crises if, affect people at ev- the everyday level? Yeah, well, the mm. main thing that we, we missed back in the 70s mm. is we thought that as resources got scarcer, prices would go up. Mm. But the bizarre nature of markets is... Depletion can be happening year by year, decade by decade, and because of all sorts of complexities in resource, how resources are measured and the way markets work, they actually have a very short uh, view of the future. Mm. So prices actually in the 80s went down. Everything got cheaper. Yeah. Uh, so the wrong signals came through, but the, the essential limits to growth crisis, which predicted some sort of civilizational collapse for industrial civilization i mean that was the word they used would happen mid 21st century we are still exactly on track for that now yeah, exactly that's a book the that way it's copped a lot of flack over the years the limits to growth i think i heard it was the most widely read scientific book of you know of its time but it went down in history as a as if a big mistake had been made and those people predicted that we'd be in crisis by now. 
Well, it was actually a lie that came out of one of the American right-wing think tanks in the Thatcherite-Reaganite revolution in the mm. 80s that the limits to growth uh, modelling and uh, researchers had predicted the energy crises of the 70s. Mm. And since those energy crises had gone away, that showed that they were wrong. Mm. They never predicted that. Those were just the ups and downs of, yeah. of local... Uh, political things in the Middle East and, yes, they did relate to the dynamics of depletion, they predicted the crisis was actually mid-21st century. Hmm. Uh, But that lie went out into the intelligentsia and I found through the 80s and 90s uh, most highly educated people in Australia would say, oh, wasn't that all proven wrong? Yeah. So well, that meme stuck oh, right, until, until quite recently. Yeah, until recently. But even then, we live in this um, kind of schizophrenic time that even as individuals you can feel immense hope of a robotic fueled Tesla green tech future, but then you look around at uh, things to do with climate change and resource depletion and uh, species loss and feel complete hopelessness. Your, your work tends to thread... I guess you could almost call it a middle pass through those in that you you coined the phrase energy descent to capture the idea that using less resources year on year might not might be inevitable, but that's not inevitably a bad thing. Yeah, that the great thing about it is that it's a change culture. Mm. Whereas the conventional view of sustainability is actually a steady state, which is actually really quite foreign to us after 500 years of uh, (laughs) of constant growth. Uh, Okay, this is actually constant change where Mm. every generation has to do something different to the previous one. That actually taps into the creativity that we've built in the modern era. Mm. It's just that the change is very, very different (laughs) in a different direction. But I think it's it's a possibility of... Uh, what Howard Odom called a prosperous way down. Yeah. Now, the focus of the book is on suburbia. And in that context of imagining that we're probably going to have less resources, you know, we don't know when the turning point is coming. Some people say conventional oil has peaked already. Um, There might be taxes or carbon trading things that limit our consumption, even if it hasn't. Uh, but is your focus on suburbia, like a lot of people see it as a, a kind of waste of space. It's taking up, why can't we cram more people into s- smaller areas and do infill development? Are you promoting suburbia because you think it's a better option or are you, pro- you know, it has the capacity to um, become this vision that you outline in the book of more self-reliance and urban food production or do you just, think we're never going to have the energy to do that infill development, even if it was a good idea? Well, I think... That was a big question. I I, I I think it's a bit of of both. Firstly, the timeline for rebuilding cities, even when you've got a rapidly growing economy with cheap energy and geopolitical stability and and, and global free trade, is a a 100-year project minimum. Mm. We've got so much stuff we're going to actually go into this future of crisis largely with what we've already built. In Brunswick, it's not 100 <laughs> years for a change. Like the last 15 years, a lot has yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a huge change. Of course, what we're seeing now is a total 
credit fueled frenzy that mm. has no precedent in history. Uh, you know, this is way beyond the tulip bubble of um, the Netherlands or any other bubble economy. Buildings are being put up with no notion of what is the business case mm. for this actually being a viable thing other than it will go up in value. Mm. And that, of course, is, you know, the signs of yeah. a public economy. But nevertheless, it's still a huge project to totally transform the building stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are going to face that energy descent future with what we've got. So retrofitting or reusing what we've already got will be a big part of the issue no matter what. Mm. And there's so much of suburbia. Yeah. <laughs> it's where the majority of Australians live. It's also where an even larger proportion of the next generation are raised or have their early years. Mm. And so that will shape people who go into mid-21st century into a very, very different world. Mm. But the big opportunity is because houses on individual blocks are relatively technically simple to retrofit, and that people can start doing that without the permission from the gatekeepers, mm. the banks, the government, whatever. They can just get started on it. Mm. Whereas our higher density areas, it's very hard to actually start radically changing those mm. because firstly, there's a whole lot of other parties that you've got to get on board. It's technically more complex. And if we're facing an energy descent future that requires a re-ruralisation, it's actually a lot harder to make those places viable. Hmm. Well, yeah, the permaculture ethic of, you know, just looking around you and doing what, what you can with what you've got is difficult to apply if you're in an apartment building. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR. joined in studio by David Holmgren, the co-originator of Permaculture and the author of a recent book, Retro Suburbia, The Downshifter's Guide to a Resilient Future. David, we wanted to talk to you about what are the other ways besides growing food that you see we can use to decrease our resource use? Well, there's lots of ways that can both decrease resource use at the same time as building resilience. And a lot of that will depend, of course, on are we owners of property or are we renters? And if we're renters, then most of the changes are at the behavioural level yep. uh, where there's huge flexibility uh, because of the the nature of how wasteful our habits have been in the past of, of just changing things and some of those are radical recycling, like uh, human waste composting, uh, which is uh, a big subject in the in the book. Um, You're talking and, about shit. Yeah, Just yeah. To be clear. Talking about, about shit. Uh, Pretty euphemistic. And uh, at a simpler level, <laughs> the um, toe in the water, so to speak, of that is a pee bucket. Yeah. You know that instead of peeing in the toilet, uh, peeing in a bucket, uh, putting that out on the garden. And that being recycling um, 90% of the nitrogen in human waste. So a lot of people 
be aware of, yeah, well, that's reducing uh, flushing, which is a good thing. But capturing that nitrogen, if you're actually trying to grow food, because our food depends on huge amounts of fertiliser or natural fertility to sustain it. And that's coming into the city all the time. And yet the city has all this surplus, (laughs) uh, which can be... Uh, reused. Now obviously you need a bit of ground or compost or or something to absorb those sorts of things. There's also so many things that can be done in terms of sharing space and making use, better use of space, right through to uh, creatively using the common, the street verge, (laughs) you know, uh, of actually making use of that space and not necessarily even getting permission to do that, that taking the attitude of asking for forgiveness uh, <laughs> rather than getting permission. Yeah. So we canvas a lot of things in retro suburbia that push a lot of those fringe edge stuff that people say, am I allowed to do that? That was one of your assumptions. It seemed that you were saying you, do, you can do some illegal things if you think it's ethical. Well, I think you've got to consider who will this affect uh, and what do I have a social licence to do this? And the social licence, the test of that, when you're talking about simple things at the household scale that involve personal activity or using savings rather than some huge bank-financed corporate action in the in the city. It's a completely different scale. And we need to think, who's going to be affected? Well, the most likely people to be affected are the neighbours. Okay, what do they think of this? Yep. So if you have that discussion, if you have that relationship with neighbours where they're cool with that, we regard that as a social licence. So you just put on some high-vis clothes and get an angle grinder <laughs> and fix the curb to water the olive tree and just have your neighbours, they're in on it? <laughs> well, this is one of the things we yeah, illustrate in the book and it's actually based on some you know, very well-designed work by uh, Brad Lancaster in Arizona who's done a lot with uh, urban water absorption, getting the runoff from streets that just goes down the drain to run back in and soak into the ground. Yeah. And this is actually called water-sensitive urban design and is the state-of-the-art, actually, of the stormwater industry that I'm actually speaking as a keynote speaker to the uh, Stormwater Victoria. And that diagram from the book will be one of the perhaps <laughs> yeah. slightly shocking examples <laughs> that I'll be showing. And it's It's playing with those things of, in the future anyway, local communities will be more on their own. They won't be able to rely on government-funded services as much and people will have to take more ownership of both the problems and the opportunities. And communities will have to become at least as self-governing as our communities used to be in the 1950s let alone the 1920s. So it's not like we're really talking about some total free-for-all, but people just sensibly doing things in managing common land and Mm. also tenants and landlords getting together to creatively decide what to do rather than 
going through all the mediators and gatekeepers, <laughs> the real estate agents, the lawyers. In the future, will there be no real estate agents? Ah, <laughs> uh, well... Is that that's well, a sore point for you at the moment, <laughs> Sarah Coles, I know. You said you're... Yeah, I'm at the mercy of a property manager and I like the idea that in the energy descent future, (laughs) she doesn't have a job. (laughs) Well, yeah, I think it'll be like a lot of industries, they will be cut down to size and they'll have to creatively uh, reshape themselves. So there are models of the sort of real estate agents that we'll have that are more looking at the use value of property rather than its speculative, uh, you know, uh, gain value. Yeah. So that encourages uh, tenants and landlords to look after properties because, of course, we've got a current situation where actually it's only the underlying land that's going up in value. And if properties are sort of um, not looked after or maintained, it's, it's not really a problem. Yeah. Whereas once the... The use value is what's behind it, then that opens up huge new creative opportunities. So you could have a tenancy inspection where they have a soil kit and they're <laughs> checking the soil and then like working out if your lemon tree is going okay. And well, we, a whole new we world. postulate that people who are active garden creators could move in to rented property, set up the garden and hand it on to the next tenant and they get a, a sort of a, a low rent or even maybe rent-free for doing that upgrade for the great. landlord. So that's the, the sort of possibilities. I can't see that happening though because I feel like they're evil. Everyone, <laughs> the people in this room are evil right now. <laughs> no. So, so you're, you're talking about a future where... Uh, resources are more expensive because of depletion and carbon taxes or whatever. And so growing food at home is kind of like a necessary thing that you have to do and has more value on it. That's what it sounds like. What kind of things in the book? Because that's not the situation right now. Foods, I think this is something you've said, is cheaper now than it has been at any point, you know, for Australians um, more or less than... It, for anybody in human history in terms of work hours for what you have to do to get yourself a potato. Um, what are some things that people can do now in this current time of abundance that are simple life life hacks... Oh, I cringed a little bit when I said that. <laughs> but that, that uh, can make, make their life better and more resilient if these things come along. But they're good in the near term. Well, the most dramatic one that you see happening everywhere now in response to the housing crisis is an increase in sharing. Hmm. And we talk in the book about extended family reunion and uh, shared households in all different ways, taking in borders, uh, becoming a household landlord effectively, having some people uh, as tenants. uh, right through to the neighbourhood landlord, the person with capital who buys the place next door, deliberately for having that relationship directly with tenants. Mm. So we're seeing this process happen uh, because of the current stresses in the cost of housing. But that behaviour is exactly the adaption that we'll see 
in even mild forms of energy descent future because we know households with more people are way more economically and resource efficient, secure, better places to live mm-hmm. as long as people get their act together around and do the, the dishes. sharing. Yeah. <laughs> no hints, housemates, who, who uh, hopefully are listening. Well, but come on, when I come home, I, wa- yeah, I want well, that, that pot scrubbed. That comes in all sorts of different ways and in some ways it's about uh, equality of sharing in doing the necessary tasks. But in other more traditional households, it's, okay, different people have different roles. Mm. And it's actually one person's kitchen where maybe a few other people Mm. help in the kitchen, but there's actually so much going on in the kitchen in terms of food processing, organisation, that it ends up being if you like, one person's job. And mm. rather than it being a shitty job, mm. it's actually the most important job in the household. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In your book, um, you talk about something called Aussie Street. Can you explain yeah. to us what's going on with that? Because I found that quite... It was sort of like Patrick White's Tree of Man. <laughs> it's really in-depth. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's uh, <laughs> a, 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 a much more... Um, um, uh, positive. Maybe don't give us the Patrick White length version of it. <laughs> since no, no. Well, I was just thinking it's also been called a permaculture soap opera. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the bit where Hilda stops keeping chooks because yeah. Lucy's moved to the country. That yes. was pretty soap opera. Yes. <laughs> uh, so it, it's, a, it's a, just for listeners, it's a, um, it's a, Fictionalised account of a fu- future scenario of a street in in Melbourne. Yeah, but starting in the fifties. So oh, it's yes. a typical suburban street. It's actually influenced partly by where I grew up in the suburbs in Western Australia, but it's most closely modelled on uh, the northern suburbs of Melbourne. But it could mm-hmm. be anywhere, and not just our capital cities. It could be in Geelong or mm. or, or Ballarat, and uh, it then goes through these changes through the decades, which are real. Mm. Uh, They're what I uh, and others uh, lived through. And then in the 2000s, there's a sort of a permaculture retrofit starts at number two and spreads to number three, while number one (laughs) and number four remain pretty much stuck in uh, the past and the uh, the current paradigm. Mm -hmm. And then in the 2020s, the second Great Depression hits, Mm -hmm. courtesy of the, the property bubble bursting. Hang on, that's not far. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Well, the dogs are just about barking it now in terms of the property bubble because Mm -hmm. I I see that as the most near-term stress Mm. more than the rapidly unfolding evidence of severe climate change, actually. Mm. Uh, As severe as that is, the dynamics of finance can turn on a dime, Mm. and they do. You are listening to a Triple R podcast. Podcast, etc. <laughs> and we start off by talking a little bit about, and it's threaded through its way through the conversation, your assumption that we're heading into an energy descent future where there'll be less resources year on year than there were the year before, and why that's led you to look at. Well, let's just see what the existing infrastructure that we have in the city available to us, I, which is mostly suburbia, can we retrofit it? And your book is an attempt and an extremely fleshed out one to imagine 
better and more resilient and more environmentally sound and productive suburbia full of uh, food production and new shared building arrangements and interesting new behavioural patterns that we'll have to adopt. Now, in this future, I'm imagining you're listening to this as a, as a young person and you're going... If you haven't heard about this stuff before, you're like, what? It's not going to be all... I was just trying to figure out, um, you know, which type of media platform I should focus my attention on in terms of my marketing skills. And you're saying, no, it's going to be this world where there might be the odd goat in the street and... I, you know, and the, we we won't be buying as much new gizmos, and we'll have to find these new ways of living. What would it mean for somebody at that age? What 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 would you what, what kind of jobs do you think would be a good way of life? Well, just to wind to back aim for. A, a, a minute, Adam, because yeah. a, apart from all of that vision that's in there, a lot of this book is actually documenting what people are already doing. Yeah, that this is a better way to live now. Mm-hmm. You know that. Uh, getting off the debt treadmill, getting off the consumption treadmill. So it's actually recording uh, case studies. There's four in the book. There's another mm-hmm. twelve on the on the website. The cover photo at a place called Hibby Farm in Heidelberg West was just just say that again. It's not Hippie Farm. Hibby Farm okay. for <laughs> Hibiscus Court, <laughs> part of the original 1956 Olympic Village. And what they're doing there with goats in the backyard and all of this amazing retro suburbia stuff that I'm Mm. talking about, it's actually happening out there. Uh, So in that sense, people are finding that this is creatively dealing with the reality we have now at the same time that it's building resilience for those uncertain futures. Do you think people are doing it for ethical reasons or they prefer the lifestyle? Oh, look, I think it's a big mixture. Some people are driven uh, by wanting to minimise their ecological footprint. Mm -hmm. Others are doing it in terms of, no, I just don't want to live that indoor, separated from nature, unfit um, and constantly needing money to do anything life. I want to do it here and now. So that's Mm. building on 40 years of permaculture activism. As you know, that you've been a part of creating all this world that there are a significant number, even if it's a minority, creating what we call a new normal Mm. of this is a cool way to live. And I think there's an element of that even in the, the sense of hipster culture reconnecting with the handmade, the mm-hmm. homegrown, the 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 unmediated relationship. Mm. The, the lack of need for shaving technology. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but to get back to your question about jobs, I think not everyone in this future will need to be a food producer, but they will need to be able to do something useful that they can directly exchange that with another person. Mm. in that direct sort of economy rather than putting your card in the slot and the corporation or the government gives you a job. Mm. I'm going to be a mercenary. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with your martial arts skills. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Good to have you on my side. Adam and I were part of this this idea of um, when you're working from home, you have a lot more freedom. 
to do things. But the other day we were both co-working, working from home, and we ended up not working we and going to the end of the for street. The record, but I went to Sarah's house. Yeah, to work. Yeah, but we ended up at an, in an aquarium, Adam. So like sometimes it's in a pet shop with someti- fish. Yeah. Oh. Sometimes it's a little too loose. Like I feel like we oh. need something. Oh, there's too oh, much freedom. Restraints. There was too much freedom. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, this is a lot of people actually uh, go to work for this reason because they actually can't yeah. cope with the freedom. We so, use the tyranny of the Pomodoro timer. Yeah, the twenty-five That's minute work block. That's the only way blocks. to do it. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is one of the challenges. I mean, I thought once the technology of being able to work from home became available. Why would anyone do it? I mean, I decided when I was 17, I was never going to commute yeah. to work. Yeah. No, I, I just decided <laughs> that. And I never have. Yeah. Mm. But sure, back in the 80s, it was a little bit more difficult yeah. to do that. Whereas now, it's really easy. But a lot of people... In some are, occupations, yeah. Sure. I don't think we want to oversell how easy it is for people to escape you know, debt and, um, you know, just you can't leave a job if you don't have savings. And there's a lot of yeah. people locked into difficult situations. But there are small interventions you can make which are outlined in your book which can help, you know, get a wedge under and under that situation and, yeah, and, and some slowly of knock it in further. Yeah, and involve challenging and big decisions. Like a lot of people who are, are very indebted on the treadmill of ownership, there's... There's hard decisions that are canvassed in the book, like bailing out of that, moving not to the country, Mm. moving to a similar sort of house in a country town, Mm -hmm. you know, and just jumping out of the debt system uh, completely or partially to reduce risk. Mm. Now, obviously, that looks in a conventional sense to a lot of people like a failure, But actually a lot of people, of course, are doing that anyway. A lot of the growth in regional towns in Australia is because people are saying, no, we need to to get out of debt. Similarly, the sharing house is a huge challenge for a lot of people, both as owners or as tenants. But sometimes there's those big decisions need to be made to really get ahead or you know, uh, but other times, there's it's a matter of the toe in the water, and it's that it's like that with food growing. You know, a lot of people get amazingly empowered when they put a few seeds in the ground, and hey, presto, this all this stuff actually does grow, and you can actually produce food. So there's a lot of those little things uh, that behaviour changes and actions can be inspiration or, or give people a sense that there's a whole lot more they can do. Mm. One thing I like about permaculture is that it's not prescriptive. It's very much built on a basis of, I don't know if to call it scientific, but like ecological, physical systems understandings. And as much as possible, you've applied that to human, psychological, social systems as well. So... Um, now, that means there's not always a simple recipe to follow, but the journey of going on it is one where you're buoyed by that sense of understanding and the right decision for you can pop out of that. And uh, it, it means it's, yeah, it can sometimes be frustrating, like, what do I do first? Um, and there are lots of suggestions for very simple practical things that you can do um, off the bat speckled throughout this book. 
But I think the strength is more that um, reading it, you might come away with a greater sense of just understanding the world around you and possibilities within it. Yeah, one of the one of the things with opening up is is the ignored household level mm. that often in society we talk about the individual and then we talk about all these big complex organizational systems and then sometimes talking about this amorphous idea of community. Mm. And of course all those things are really important, but it often ignores the fact that the fundamental level of organization in society where we do the most basic things like cook food and uh, look after children and fix stuff is actually at the household level. Mm. And we because our households in general are so small in numbers, so unskilled, so little time going into them because the individuals in them are out in the workplace or in the consumption market doing other things Mm. which also makes our cities so crowded they're not actually crowded by numbers density of people it's just everyone driving between empty buildings that are under lock and key Uh, but our households are sort of like this real weak point and yet rather than that being a restoration of some conventional social conservative idea it may be a family it may be something else, but there's huge potential to grow the household uh, economy. And we know historically mm. that whenever hard times come, that's what happens anyway. Mm. So the people who are doing that positively are hedging against that future, as well as finding that it's actually more economical often to do things at home than to pay for them. Congratulations on the book and thank you for being a return guest, David Holmgren. Great to be here on Greening the Apocalypse. Yeah, and it's been so good to have you back, Sarah Coles. Yeah. Do some more. It's been good to be here and if I get kicked out of my house, I'm going to live in Triple R yeah. in the green room. I reckon there's like some roofs, some ceiling space, there's yeah. a manhole in the, in, the, in the gents if you want me to show you where it is. Um, Kent, thank you so much. It's been great. Great to be with you. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.